The scripture text for this morning's sermon is taken from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find that the principle... That evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Let's pray together. Father for the fourth time now we will Focus our attention on this passage of scripture concerning the divided man who doesn't do what he wants to do and wants to do what he doesn't do. And I pray for understanding for all of us. I pray for biblical realism concerning ourselves. I pray for sober, hope-filled humility and humble liberty from the despair of hopelessness that comes from failing to measure up to your standards of perfection. I pray for an anointing upon this moment in this service so that sinners would repent and turn to Christ in their hearts and get right with you. And that saints would be encouraged and strengthened and purified and missionaries who would be on the streets would be made bold and joyful and meekly confident in a great and holy God. So come, Lord, and do this and a hundred other things exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I could ask or think. Because you take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 in ways no human could ever dream. Do it here, do it now, I pray. 
through Christ. Amen. Last time it was June 24, and we were together for the third time in this text, and now we're here for the fourth time. And on June 24th, I gave you five arguments for why I believe Paul is describing his own Christian experience in this passage as opposed to describing his pre-Christian experience. Some of you who are newer may not realize what I've tried to make plain, namely that there is a quite a dispute even among sober, fair-minded, godly, biblical scholars as to whether or not this text describes Paul as he talks about himself before he was a Christian or after he was a Christian. And I'm arguing that this is, in fact, a description of Paul's experience after he became a Christian, and therefore it's a description of, of our experience. That's why it's relevant. This is me. This is you, if you're a Christian. What we've just heard, read. Now, let me make sure you don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Christians live only in defeat. What I am saying is no Christian lives in continual victory. And this text is describing those moments, those seasons, those times when sin gets the upper hand and we are temporarily, as Christians, defeated. That's what I think he's talking about here. And the text is valuable not only to give us the sober biblical realism about ourselves, but to instruct us how we should then respond to those moments. What should we do? How should we feel about ourselves? And Paul illustrates, I think, every time you fail to do what you know you ought to do, or feel what you know you ought to feel, or think what you know you ought to think, you ought to do this. You ought to say, I love your law. And then you ought to say, I hate what I just did. I'm sorry. And then you ought to say, wretched man or wretched woman that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then you ought to say, Jesus Christ is going to get the victory and deliver me from this tortured, imperfect Christian life of mine someday. That's the way you ought to talk about yourself when you fail, which is every day. No Christian wants to live this way. No Christian settles to live this way. But if you do for a time, an hour, a moment, a day, a week, live this way, look, as a church, can we just agree, we're not going to lie about it. We're not going to become hypocrites. 
We're not going to do a lot of posing, a lot of boasted perfectionism. We're not going to put on churchy, pasted smiles that all is okay. A lot of chipper superficiality. May the Lord deliver us from blindness of our own failures and the consequent quickness to judge other people, right? If you are oblivious to your Romans 7 personality, you'll be a judgmental person for sure. Always your finger in somebody else's face and almost never saying, rich man that I am, who's going to deliver me? So let's just cultivate a sense of the, the tightrope or the razor's edge of the Christian life. I am laboring in this text to push you away from the pride of perfectionism toward humility and away from the hopelessness of perfectionism toward hope. I'm working on two sides here. There's the perfectionistic type that think they're doing okay, and there's the absolutely desperate, hopeless folks who think they'll never measure up, and there's no use trying. And I'm pushing from both directions here because we've got a biblical realism in the book of Romans that's not over here with perfectionism. It's not over here with despair and hopelessness. It's here with humble hopefulness. We're trying to weave our way in a biblical way of of reality in this fallen world that's very inhospitable to holiness To rescue people from hopeless despair who chuck Christianity, not because they don't believe it's true, but because they don't believe it's possible. And the others over here that think they've got it in their back pocket. And so there's no fight, there's no labor, there's no difficulty, there's no trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Where's that in their lives? So... That's where we've been. I read a a book on vacation by William Wilberforce, who many of you remember from 200 years ago, um, spent five decades of his life trying to overcome the slave trade in, in England. That's what he's known for. He's a member of parliament for almost 50 years. And he wrote a book called A Practical View of Christianity been republished now. It was published in 1797. And now it's been republished in 1996. And it is a very good book. Typical 18th century English. An, An absolutely stunning thing to me that it became an immediate bestseller. And I can barely read it. Which says something about how low our standards have become over the last 200 years. And the other thing amazing about this book is that I don't think there's a politician in the world today who could write a book like this. 
because it is so incredibly spiritually discerning and sensitive and saturated with the Bible. The reason I mention it to you is because he talked in numerous places about Romans 7. I didn't read it for that reason. I'm going to lecture on Wilberforce at the pastor's conference. That's why I'm reading it. Here are two quotes. He was trying to persuade the Christian nominal church of his day in England that they were all depraved and needed to have a deeper sense of their own remaining corruption as Christians. And he said, one testimony to this is that every watchful, diligent, self-denying Christian will tell you, quote, that every day strengthens this conviction. Yea, that hourly he sees fresh reason to deplore his lack of simplicity in intention, his infirmity of purpose, his low views, his selfishness, his unworthy desires, his backwardness to set about his duty, his languor and coldness in performing it, that he finds himself obliged continually to confess that he feels within him two opposite principles and that he cannot do the things that he would. That's Wilberforce's description of the best Christian. One other quote. He says, there is in every believer a seminal principle, that's his phrase, a a seed principle of new life in Christ. And it is threatened on all hands because we live, he says, in a highly inhospitable atmosphere on earth to the fruit growing of holiness. It's like trying to grow a peach tree from Georgia in Minnesota. There isn't one here. But if God were to plant it here, it would grow. And it would bear peaches against all odds. And they would probably be tiny and not very juicy. Like much of your fruit is living in the wintry world called planet Earth that is governed by the God of this age and The world and the flesh and the devil are mounting every effort against your fruit bearing every hour of every day to keep you from being a Christian like you ought to be. And so he says in this atmosphere, quote, while the servants of Christ continue in this life, glorious as is the issue of their labors, they receive many humiliating reminders of their remaining imperfections and daily find reason to confess that they cannot do the things that they would. End quote. Now, that's my view of the Christian life. That's my understanding of Romans 7. And I am giving you arguments. I have given you five. I have at least five more. I'll probably only give you two more this morning. And the reason I am multiplying arguments for this view is not to make you good arguers. Good arguers generally become big-headed debaters who just like to win for the sake of ego. That's not the point. 
It's the opposite of the point, in fact. I multiply arguments so that you will know who you really are. And have a strong foundation when Satan and the world and your own flesh rise up to to identify you differently than you are. You will have ground under your feet to make sure you stay strong in the biblical realism of your imperfect Christianity, which will get you everlasting glory. So I'm not trying to to help make argument winners out of you. I want to rescue you from despair on the one hand and pride on the other. So let's pick up where we left off with argument five. Just to link argument five and six. The last argument I gave you in favor of the position that this text, what I want to do, I don't do, is describing a Christian rather than a pre-Christian came from Galatians chapter 2 and the experience of Peter. Just rehearse it quickly. Everybody knows probably that Peter failed miserably on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. He did it. Three times he said, I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. And then Jesus looked at him, it says in Luke, looked at him. And he went out. And he wept bitterly. And I would wager my life that the words that came out of his mouth were something like, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this boastful, presumptuous, self-reliant body of death that said, I'll go with you to death. Who's going to save me? Surely he said something like that. In other words, Peter is a picture as a believer... Of this text and, and an argument, therefore, that it's a Christian text. It's about it's about Christians. But the main argument, number five, was years later, after Pentecost and the filling of the Holy Spirit, years later, after seeing the risen Christ, years later, after being filled numerous times over and over again by the Holy Spirit, according to the book of Acts, he did it again. Galatians chapter 2. You might want to turn there because my sixth argument is going, to, is going to come from Galatians as well. Just about four books over. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, three books. And you remember what he did. He's, he's experiencing the triumph and the liberty of his Christian freedom in Christ and eating with Gentiles. And some strict Christians... From Jerusalem, come. And he caves, just like he caved on the night in which he betrayed Jesus. Verse 12 of Galatians 2. When they came, Peter began to withdraw from the Gentiles and hold himself aloof. Here it is, fearing the party of the circumcision. It's the same old besetting sin. Years later, after being filled with the Holy Spirit, after seeing the risen Christ, he had more advantages than you do. And he failed. 
It was such a serious failure and sin, Paul not only rebuked him publicly to his face, he said, you're not walking according to the gospel, the gospel's at stake here, Peter. He wrote it in a book for everybody to read, poor Peter. And then he described it like this, verse 13. The rest of the Jews join him in hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas. They don't get any better than Barnabas. Was carried away by their hypocrisy. This is Christian life. This is apostolic life. That's why I believe Romans 7, written by an apostle, means what it says concerning I, an apostle, sometimes don't do what I want to do, do what I don't want to do, and I hate myself in those moments and cry out for deliverance. That was argument number five. We see it in Peter. Now, number six. We're only going to do two. See if we can do them quickly. Argument number six comes from Galatians 5. Turn, turn a page or two over to Galatians 5. We're arguing that this kind of temporary fall and failure in the Christian life is biblical. It's, it's what Romans 7 teaches and it's what other texts teach. Now here we have Galatians 5, and in verse 17, Paul is using language very close to Romans 7. But here, we know it's Christian experience because you've got the person having the Holy Spirit. And another power at work. So let's read verse 17. You watch carefully. Galatians 5, 17. The flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit... Against the flesh. So here you have a Christian. He's got that flesh principle. He's got the spirit. For these are in opposition to each other. So that, now here comes very crucial words like Romans 7. So that you may not do the things that you please. It's the same word in Greek. Please misleads a little bit. It's want. What you desire. What you want. The the language, the grammar even, the very word structure is almost identical to the phrasing in Romans 7. You may not do the things you want to do. Now notice carefully, because there are counter arguments to this argument. Some of them go like, Romans 7 does not talk about the spirit and the flesh. It talks about, and I want to do what I don't do. Well, my response to that is, at the end of this verse, that's exactly what you've got. Not spirit versus flesh, as though I, John Piper, Christian, am watching this battle, and I'm sort of an innocent bystander. There comes the spirit, he's doing his thing in my life. Here comes the flesh, it's doing his thing in my life, and I'm watching, and they're having the battle. That is not the picture here. The picture is I, empowered by spirit, I, driven by flesh, whammo, against each other. you got a you and a you against each other, right? At the end of verse 17, you, not spirit, but you, 
Do not do the things that you want to do. You got a W in you. You got a divided me in you. That's reality. And the one you sustained by faith, inhabited by the Spirit, needs to triumph over the old you, which has in fact been crucified with Jesus Christ. So that's my sixth argument. We have a Christian here. The language is used very much like Romans 7, and it is a divided experience just like Romans 7 is. Last argument this morning, argument number seven. What I'm going to do here is try to answer the best argument against my view. I think it's the best one. It's the hardest one I have. It almost persuades me, but doesn't. Now let's go back to Romans 7 and I'll show you what it is. I want you to see the strongest argument in favor of not construing Romans 7, 14 to 25 as Christian experience, but rather pre-Christian or non-Christian experience. There are others, and I'll try to answer them too, but I think the strongest and the one that gives me the most difficulty is in verse 14 of Romans 7 at the end of the verse, second half of the verse. Paul, apparently, on my view, describing himself as a Christian, says in the NASB, I am of flesh. Or literally, I am carnal or fleshly. Sold into bondage to sin. Or literally, sold under sin. I am carnal. Sold under sin. And the other side says, Piper, you just can't believe a Christian can talk like that. You can't say that. That a Christian can say, I'm sold like a slave. To a slave master under sin. Piper, haven't you read chapter 6? Verse 4. Verse 17. Verse 18. Verse 19. Verse 20. Verse 22. All of them say something like verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. That's the Christian experience. Freed from sin Slaves to righteousness, that old slave master that held us, owned us, has been broken. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Piper, don't teach these people that they should speak of themselves in terms of Romans seven fourteen. That's a very good argument. Okay? Not making light of that. I struggle with verse 14. I wish Paul didn't talk of himself that way. But then I have to ask all these other arguments I find more compelling than the impossibility that he could talk that way about himself. And then I look for evidences in his writings that he could in fact talk of himself as being sold under sin in a temporary moment where the old slave master gets the upper hand, takes him to himself, defeats him. Could he describe that as I'm carnal, sold at that moment, as it were, like a slave under an old slave master? 
And I answer, yes, he could. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I believe that he could. Look at verse 12 of chapter 6. Isn't Paul in verse 12 actually warning them not to let happen what sometimes happens? He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, I think the reason he, he gives a command is that it's not a given that that's not going to happen. It's not automatic. Oh, good, I'm saved. I won't ever let sin reign in my mortal body. Sin will never reign, never reign in my life. There'll be no moment where it gets the upper hand and acts like a king over me, puts me down and defeats me. There'll never be any of those. I think Paul says, there are going to be some of those. And I'm telling you in verse 12, fight like hell to not let it happen. So, what do you describe it as if it happens? You know, you talk light, you talk easy, do you make light of it? You know, you don't. You might say something like, I'm so carnal. My old man, my flesh keeps fighting. And I have to keep reckoning it dead and counting it dead over and over again. Like it really is in Jesus Christ. I'm a dead man in Jesus Christ. There's one other reason I think Paul might talk this way about being sold under sin in moments of defeat. You don't need to look this up, but I'll just read it to you. In Galatians 5.1, now this is where Paul has in his mind probably the failure of Peter. Peter started to build up again those things that he had torn down. He started to slip into the slavery to the law that he had once been so wondrously freed from. And Galatians 5.1 says... It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There, the very word slavery is used to describe the kind of thing chapter 6 verse 12 was warning against. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Neither slavery to the law nor slavery to sin. What if? It happens like it happened to Peter. How are you going to talk about it? Might you not? And I'm not saying I'm absolutely right on this or that I've got the last word, but this is my response to the argument from chapter 7, verse 14. Might you not say with warrant something like, I am carnal, soul again under sin. Sin like a slave master just took me made me afraid, I pulled away from the Gentiles, I stopped eating freely with them, I became a coward, and I was dominated by sin, and Jesus told me never to be dominated by sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me. God, forgive me, have mercy upon me. I look to you. And I'm going to close right here by asking more practically, okay, if you're, if you're with me, and you think that the Bible teaches that this is the battle, this is where we live, this is where we fight, this is who we are, what then should you do? And you've already heard illustrations as we've gone along, but let me sum it up like this as we close. Number one, 
Remember the promise that you are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3.28 And trust him who justifies the ungodly and receive him and embrace him as your only hope before a holy God. Just go back again and again to the cross and to the gospel. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. I will commend myself to his mercy and to his righteousness when I stand before a holy judge. All my accumulation of good deeds, and there will be an accumulation of good deeds, will be as contaminated rags. Though God will see in them beautiful things. The second thing I want you to do is to remember that you are sanctified by faith. Not just justified by faith. But sanctified by faith. You know, the verse that has just gripped me in these years we've been together, and especially in the last year, is Romans 7, 4. I think it's one of the most important verses on, on holiness and how to live the Christian life in the whole book of Romans. Romans 7, 4 says this, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law, so that you might be united, joined, To another, to him who is raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Why? Why dead to the law? Why join to the living Christ? These are the two realities I've been pushing. Dead to the law, join to the living Christ. Why? Last phrase in the verse. So that you might bear fruit for God. That's holiness, that's sanctification, that's love, that's on the streets tomorrow in Minneapolis. That's the hard situation in your family. You're going to bear fruit for God. Is your mouth going to be a fountain of life instead of a fountain of bitterness and criticism? That's your parenting, that's your struggle at work this week. You're going to bear fruit for God. How are you going to bear fruit for God? You're going to die to the Lord. You're going to say, okay... If I'm going to make any headway in becoming a holy person, given the inhospitability of this earth to my holiness, and given my own flesh, and given the, the, the realities of my imperfection, I've got to realize the first and primary and decisive way to holiness is not by law-keeping. It's by union through faith with a living person who satisfies my soul hour by hour with his grace and his glory. It's the only way I'll make any headway. And so my, my, my closing plea is get to know him. I wrote the book Seeing and Savoring Jesus, mainly for me, but also for you. We've got to know him. You've got to know Him. If you don't know Him, if you're not united to Him, if you're not growing in the capacity to see Him and savor Him, then you won't show Him with your fruit. You won't have any fruit. It's not a law thing. It's a person thing. It's knowing Him, loving Him, being satisfied by Him. And let me close with this. The final thing is remember this. There is a world of difference. A heaven and hell kind of difference between a soldier who experiences tactical defeats but keeps on fighting on his way to victory and a sellout. Hear me? There is a world of difference between a soldier who experiences tactical defeats in his warfare with sin but keeps on fighting to the promised victory and a traitor who sells out.
because the war is just too hard and the enemy territory is just too attractive. Let's pray. Father, I beg of you, no sellouts in this room. No sellouts. Yeah, a lot of imperfect people. A lot of stumblers, bumblers, fallers. But oh God, make us fighters. Make us return again and again to the cross and fight the fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life, which is life indeed. Let none of us be daunted by the words of Satan when he tries to accuse us and say there's no hope for us. Before the throne of a holy God, there is infinite hope because Christ is our righteousness. And we receive him afresh every day as our treasure by faith. And we fight not in our own strength, but in the strength that you supply. And we are sorry for the times where we fail. Love each other as you go. Talk to one another. Bless each other. You're dismissed.